3: This is a Rogue Media Network podcast.
0: We're back. According to the World Health Organization, about 2.4 billion people globally are currently living with a health condition that may benefit from rehabilitation.
4: This week is National Rehabilitation Awareness Week and we wanted to learn more about what rehab is, and how it makes a positive impact for those in need, so joining us this, for this conversation, we have Trevor Carlson, who is the Director of Rehab Services at Baylor Scott and White Hillcrest. and I wanna thank you for being here, and for what you do, because I've had to go through rehab for my leg before, and it's just really intense, so uh, good people make it a lot easier. Um, so we know there are different types of rehab out there. What can you tell us about those different types of rehab, who needs it, and what it entails?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So, thanks for having me. So, rehabilitation by nature is interdisciplinary, it means that there are a lot of different rehabilitation professionals that kind of contribute to kind of holistic care. So out of the gates you have like things like physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech language pathologists. We also have rehab trained physicians, nurses, case managers, and all of that team-based approach helps patients regain function. So, you ask what patients can benefit really a lot of patients. People who maybe aren't able to do the things that they normally want to do, maybe people that are struggling with some with weakness or balance issues or having ongoing pain.
0: Do you feel like this is something that people put off and then once they go through it, they're like, the light bulb
1: goes off? <laughs> we certainly have those cases. Yeah. Um, you know, Sometimes uh, we, we, we have that conversation when they come in for the first time and you realize their injury was a while back. Mm-hmm. And people try a lot of home remedies, they try things on the internet, and then sometimes eventually end up in our clinics.
4: Um, As far as, you know, the things that Baylor Scott & White has planned for this week, this National Rehabilitation Awareness Week, what do you got going on?
1: Yeah, we have a lot of events going on. Uh, We are celebrating our staffs. we're doing a lot of internal things as well, just to recognize the great work that they do. Mm -hmm. But back to that word awareness and awareness week, uh, we're also doing some things for the community. Certainly this is one of those things to talk about rehabilitation and the importance of it. Um, Also on Thursday this week, we're doing something called our rehab reunion. It's the sixth annual rehab reunion. We're inviting our patients back who've gone through you know, some major recovery, uh, maybe sometimes a disease or injury or catastrophic things that they've been working really hard to regain their life. And so we're inviting them all back for uh, a celebratory night uh, to get together, share stories, and just kind of recognize their the effort they put in and kind of that human spirit.
0: You said regain their life, that is powerful. Do you have any other stories about patients when they return after going through rehab and you see how well they're doing?
1: Yeah, we, we are very fortunate to have a lot of different stories that patients share. And and one of the first things that we ask our patients is, what are your goals, right? What do you want to accomplish out of this? And so, uh, we've had patients that have returned to work, returned to school. Uh, one of my favorite stories was uh, someone who was wanted to return to attend Baylor sports games. That was really important to that yeah. person as well. And so, you know, navigating things at the stadium, like steps and corridors and bathrooms, uh, was part of his goal. And he was able to achieve those. And so, you know, getting out there and seeing the Baylor Bears play again was kind of touching. For everybody,
4: I like the idea of that reunion because I'll tell you, even in my experience, which was 10 years ago, you never forget those people who help you walk again in a normal way. It, you never, ever forget them. And I know it's a lot of training people go through to do this. What keeps you, I mean, what kept you pushing then? What keeps you pushing now? Because it's hard. It's hard, to, even on your side, it's very hard.
1: So. Yeah, back to your previous comment, we're very lucky to, to kind of meet people sometimes at their lowest point in their lives. They've gone through something major and, and we're there to be able to support them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, uh, we thrive in the fact that that we can support wherever their needs are right and so when you think about rehabilitation if someone needs a lot of assistance or help or needs some treatment right off the bat we'll provide as much as we can but over time the goal is to return people to independence so we kind of once you accomplish a little goal that's great let's set another one and go from there and so that progression of seeing people get back and achieving their goals just really is uh, it's really great
0: how much of your training is mental when you yeah. were training for this profession because a lot of what you're talking about is that giving people the confidence to get back out there and do sure. what they want to do.
1: Sure and rehabilitation is unique because it, it does involve the human behavior and psychology and so uh, you know sometimes it's easy to take a pill or it's easy to get a surgery and things like that and those are all important things but to do recovery it takes work and energy and that involves motivation, determination and so you know sometimes I think the, that rehabilitation professionals are, are medical professionals, but also just as much coaches and encouragers mm-hmm. and people that get behind you to rah-rah into yeah. that next that next phase.
4: That's very true. When we talk to kids at schools as we go out into the community. One thing I hear as a career choice a lot is physical therapists or something along those lines. So what advice would you give to a young person maybe seeing this if they wanted to pursue this as a career?
1: Yeah, there's, there's great options out there. One of the things that I love about rehab so much is we spend a lot of time with patients. You know, we are with them for long sessions. We really get to know them makes them tick, what their needs are. And so, if if, if, if someone young is interested in, in, in rehabilitation as a career, if they are interested in um, working with people closely uh, and, and motivating them and encouraging them, I think it'd be a great option.
0: Baylor Scott & White Hillcrest, Rehabilitation mm-hmm. Awareness yeah. Week, plenty of ways that you can get involved by Absolutely. looking them up, and Trevor, we appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, yeah, appreciate
1: it. Thanks so a yeah. lot
0: up next on kwtx at four andrew hamilton explores how the video game industry makes big bucks with microtransactions. that is in today's hardwired segment just ahead september is national suicide prevention month it's a time to remember the lives lost to suicide the millions of people who have struggled with suicidal ideation and acknowledge those who have been impacted
4: it's also a time to raise awareness and share messages of hope here to do exactly just that is Jen Card, the CEO at Canyon Creek Behavioral Health in Temple. So, we want to thank you for being here to talk about this. Um, research shows dramatic increases in suicides among adults and youth these days. So, can you share with us some of the latest information?
5: Absolutely. So, we clearly know that our work is not done here. And research in 2021 showed that 48,000 individuals in the U.S. completed suicide. So, a very staggering number. In addition to that, 12 million adults reported that they had thoughts of suicide, and of those, 3 million actually started to make a plan. So, when we look at that, in that 48,000, that's about one death every 11 minutes. Oh, my
0: goodness. So, Jen, how is your team at Canyon Creek addressing these troubling numbers? So here in Central Texas, Canyon Creek Behavioral Health
5: um, is really open 24-7, available with licensed professionals and dedicated staff passionate about this work. We're able to provide inpatient and outpatient services, so all someone has to do is reach out to us directly, come right in, you don't need an appointment, and um, we can help with
4: that. So obviously that's one way to do is go right in and get help, but if someone does find themselves in crisis, um, you know, what should they do, where should they go, no matter where they are?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the best resources that we have right now is uh, fairly new in the last couple of years. It's uh, 988 that you can dial straight from your phone. You can even text that number and that will get you to a licensed counselor that can provide resources, support, and uh, any of those types of things that an individual may need. Now, another important thing to note is that if you're a veteran, you can also use that number, call 988
0: and press 1 for some veteran-specific resources. In our community, that's especially important, of course. What are some of the warning signs you should watch out for with your loved ones as, as far as thoughts of suicide? Yeah, so when we
5: are looking at warning signs, and and they can vary for individuals of course, but some of the things that we look at are if someone is starting to isolate a bit more, um, if they do have any kind of mental health diagnosis, like depression, if they deal with substance use, those can be risk factors. So if we see those getting worse in our loved one, those are things that we wanna look out for. Another thing is uh, access to um, what we call lethal means. Mm. So that would be things like firearms or lethal medications.
4: Um, It it seems like there's a common misconception out there that some folks think if I talk to someone about suicide, they may be more more likely to complete the act of suicide. Uh, Tell us why that's wrong.
5: Yes, so as you mentioned, research shows that in talking about suicide, asking the question even in uh, a non-judgmental, empathetic, empathetic way actually decreases the likelihood it's, that someone would act on those thoughts. So we want to be talking about this. We want to increase that conversation, uh, and that's the way that we're going to decrease that 48,000 and really start to save some lives.
0: If you scan the QR cro- code on your screen right now, you can find out more information about what we're talking about. Especially if you're sitting at home, concerned about someone or concerned for yourself, this is really important information for people to take in, that they're not alone or that their loved one is not alone. Obviously, the statistics show that. Yes, that's absolutely correct, and
5: you know, as a clinician myself and someone who has been personally touched by suicide in my own life, I understand how difficult that conversation may be, but again, that's why we have to continue talking about it, and I'm so glad that we're having this conversation now, so hopefully we can get some of those resources out to the community as a whole.
4: I was going to actually ask you that question, as you know, obviously this is a very important Thing to talk about and a very important thing to help people deal with and cope with and what you know what brought you into this field of work and what kind of satisfaction have you got out of seeing people get some help
5: sure thank you for asking that so you know as i mentioned um my life has personally been touched by suicide and certainly individuals you know with mental health uh diagnoses can uh, experience those thoughts, in addition to a variety of other uh, emotional crises that that we can assist with. Um, But my team is certainly passionate about it, and I always like to say that the behavioral health realm doesn't necessarily um, get chosen, but chooses the individuals that work in it, and that's certainly what I believe, and certainly what uh, my team at Canyon Creek believes.
0: And you have some programs that are uh, upcoming or currently going on right now that people can get involved with? We do, so as I mentioned, we provide inpatient
5: services as well as outpatient. so if someone comes in, they can receive an assessment um, by a licensed professional, and at that point, we can provide recommendations on what type of care we um, you know, think is best for that individual. Our outpatient clinic is right on site, so you don't have to go far, And we have even some specific programs geared towards women's mental health issues. And we also serve adolescents starting at age 12 and up through adulthood. And we were speaking about veterans earlier. Uh, We certainly have uh, services for veterans and their family members as well. All
4: right, Jen Card with Canyon Creek and Temple. Thank thank you so much for coming today. We appreciate you. Thank
5: you so much again for having me. Mm -hmm. We'll be right
4: back. The gaming industry is a juggernaut, a massive tech giant generating unbelievable amounts of money from games, consoles, accessories, too. One kind of transaction, though, dominates the playing field, and that's microtransactions.
0: Yeah, that's the exchange of real-world money for digital goods not included in the base version of the games. For example, cosmetic things like characters' outfits or special weapons. Andrew Hamilton dives into the monetization of video games in this week's Hardwired.
3: Since the introduction of the microtransaction in the early 2000s, the types and cost of these digital goods have exploded. How much, you ask? Last year, FIFA 23 made over 1.4 billion dollars in Ultimate Team sales. Grand Theft Auto 5 released 10 years ago, and GTA Online made 3.38 billion in revenue in 2021. One game generated that much money. Enough money to overshadow some countries' GDP. But these companies aren't yet satisfied with those numbers. No, they're not quite high enough. Microtransactions are getting more expensive, more bold, and perhaps worst of all, they're becoming more and more manipulative. Today, I'm going to walk you through a brief history of microtransactions and tell you what you can do to avoid falling victim to the sways of this ever-growing sector of gaming. In the early days of gaming, you would go to an arcade with a stack of quarters and a day's worth of dreams. You were going to get the high score on Donkey Kong, and that was going to make you the coolest kid in the freaking world. But because of how those systems were designed, you'd end up dropping $10 or $15 on an afternoon of fun. This was the original microtransaction. Eh, sort of. Fast forward to the dawning days of major consoles. Games came out fully packaged at $40, which is $120 when it goes into inflation. That's insane. You didn't have to pay extra for extra content because no one was doing it. For 20 years we played like this, only ever having to really invest in additional DLC expansions, which were practically full games in and of themselves. Until one evening, over at Bethesda Studios, someone had the brilliant idea. Horses should have armor, and that armor should cost our players $2.99. Thus, the modern-day microtransaction was born, and gamers were like, (laughs) they were so mad. You've
5: got to be kidding.
3: People threatened to stop buying Bethesda games. They swore they would never buy something as silly as horse armor, and it was number 9 in the top 10 digital goods on Xbox Marketplace that year. Go figure. Regardless of what it was, whether it was something we wanted or not, Bethesda had shown the whole industry, that this model works. You can cut content or create cosmetic content and sell it for almost any price and it will print money. Since then, entire games have exploded with their own marketplaces. Fortnite, Call of Duty, Grand Theft Auto, Minecraft, FIFA, and so so many more games have their own built-in in-game storefronts. And it's not just the quantity of these microtransactions that have increased, it's the cost of the items themselves. As an example, The horse armor that I mentioned earlier originally cost $2.99 in 2005. This year also had a horse armor in Diablo 4. And despite you barely being able to see the horse, this horse armor somehow cost $8.99. That's a 200% increase in video game equestrian wear. I don't understand. How did we get here? Well, that's why I asked former game media person and gaming PR agent. Carolyn Arumi about the original pitch for DLC.
2: To be back in like early DLC, the community was very sensitive to DLC as a product, meaning like, hey, what are you giving me? Like, what am I getting back? And the company has kind of gently introduced it and said, hey, this is an extra map or this is an extra part of the story, you know, not, and the game was being sold as a complete game. You you don't need that part of the story, but it's definitely changed a lot now. The, The console market is unfortunately following the mobile market and it's more games as a service, unfortunately.
3: Mobile games have long used this formula to take advantage of our psychological need to complete a task. By putting artificial walls in place that we can remove, it allows the game to take advantage of our need to complete that task. You're so close to the end, why not pay the ninety-nine for the extra crystals that lets you have an hour more of gameplay? Mainstream games on consoles and PC do this as well, but they mostly use the societal pressure of FOMO, or the fear of missing out. This can make you feel less cool, or like the other player has a secret advantage that can be unlocked if only you could play as Joey from Friends in Fortnite. These psychological games have only grown more heinous in recent years, but perhaps worse than that, they've often grown equally more subtle. If you're
2: familiar with Machine Zone and Game of War, but if you remember the ads, they had like Shakira and like JLo in their commercials, and they were very flashy, they spent a lot of money, but they actually we one of the first mobile games to successfully implement psychology, gambling psychology to mobile gaming. There were people dropping upwards of thirty dollars to $40,000 per month on this crappy mobile game. Now we're just used to it, you know?
3: Yes, season passes have become another way to section off content and extend the life of a game. It seems so simple. Pay $10 to get access to 100 tiers worth of items. Except that it's not quite that one-to-one of a thing. See, you pay into the past, then you have to grind out hours and hours of gameplay for the opportunity to earn all the stuff that you paid for, which means potentially if you don't play enough, you don't earn all the things that you're paying for. If you aren't able to play consistently, you are losing money. And towards the end of seasons, they'll offer you the chance to jump tiers. Pay $1.99, jump a tier. Maybe jump the whole rest of the season pass for $30 so you don't get left behind by your friends who've been playing nonstop because they don't have jobs. It's these subtle psychological ways these games influence us that make them dangerous for people with addictive personalities and most importantly, for kids. So what can you do to protect yourself and your kids against what many believe to be manipulative practices? Look, I'm not saying to strip away the games from your kids, but instead do the research, sit down and look through the menus, Have an open conversation about these types of transactions with your kiddos, and most importantly, read up on the parental controls. You need to make sure only things you are approving are being bought. Video games are some of the greatest experiences out there. Incredible stories, lifelong friends, and unique worlds to get lost in. But like with anything that's good, there are always going to be dangers that you have to watch out for. Stay in control. Limit your cosmetic purchases. Try not to buy into every season pass, and only buy content that's worth it to you. But most importantly, keep track of how much money you're transitioning to digital currency. That's where they'll get you. Game on, stay safe. And if you like what we do here, be sure to subscribe to Hardwired over on YouTube.com. Until next time, I'm Andrew Hamilton, and I'll see you then.
4: I cannot believe all the money spent, $30,000 a month by one person? That's
0: crazy. I mean, what are these people doing? They know. have that money. Is so that... my
4: video game's coming out next month, uh, okay. and it's about a balding middle-aged guy trying to Stop pay his mortgage. It. He's got a beard belly, too, <laughs> and you can <laughs> buy different avatars. I'm just kidding. Boy, Andrew had me at Joey from money. Friends. I thought that yeah. was actually pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I like that a lot. And if you want to play some video games, I guess uh, we'll be inside and just deal with the heat some more.